Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are talking to founding member of Lone Justice, Ryan Hedgecock. I think everyone out there knows the Lone Justice story, but in case you don't, Ryan, well, you know, everything was everything was put in place for these guys to get big. They were uh, signed to a major label, Jimmy Iovine produced their, their debut album from 1985, they had a charismatic lead singer in Maria McKee. But this mix of theirs of country, classic country music with punk, just no one knew what to do with it, including the label and including Jimmy Iovine. And they tried to fit this band, who was really unique, into a box that they thought might sell a million copies, and it didn't work. And so ultimately, Ryan and Lone Justice got pulled into the machine and spit back out again. And it's kind of a tragic tale. They're a little bit of like, you know, a warning to other bands. It's it's sad because there was so much more to be had there, but uh, it just didn't work. And I believe, and you'll see in this conversation, it's probably because the right, the wrong people were trying to make these guys into something they weren't. And uh, anyway, so Ryan, after the demise of Lone Justice, they did put out a second album, which he barely played on, and it barely made a dent, and then that was it. Ryan had some, did some other musical uh, projects, but it, you know he's done that and been a regular guy. And so he tells his story in here. He's a great storyteller. He's very passionate, very excitable. But uh, you learn how unfortunate it all is. It really is at the end of the day. There's some fantastic stories in here, one of which is about Bob Dylan, there's uh, Dolly Parton, there's a lot of other things going on in here, it's great. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think we've all been curious about Lone Justice, what the real story is there, and now we know. Ryan called me from his home in LA. Okay, well, uh, good. So here we are, man. Here we are, finally. Okay, this is about a year and a half, I think, in the making. We're going to finally do this. Listen. It's all good for me. I think really what I can give you, it's, it's going to satisfy what you initially wanted, but it's gonna, I'm going to give you something that I don't think yeah. anybody's really talked about. There's been a couple of these books that have been out. No one's really talked about the root scene yeah. of L.A. Yeah. And, what, and how that came to be. And like I'm one of the guys that was there. I watched it. I was at some of the actual first shows. Yeah. I was there at the very beginning of all of it. And no one's really talked about it, but this is the fertile ground that Dwight Yoakam came out of, mm-hmm. that Lucinda Williams came out of. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why do people move to L.A.? Like, why did Graham Parson move to L.A. and not Nashville? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, L.A. has got a vibe. It was like the birds were, you know, they were a rock band. What did they become? They became a country band. Yeah. Like the Eagles came out of L.A. Why does L.A. always eventually go to country? Like, that's, why does that always happen? It does. Look at it. That's a really interesting question. I have. What's the answer? What do you think it is? It's the indigenous music of the area here. You, you know, I mean, this is, it's basically like there's two types of music going on in L.A. One is the white music. You know, Bob Wills was a 
fucking monster out oh, here. I love Bob, Bob Wills. Wills was me too. He yeah. was he fucking li- he lived in San Fernando Valley. He, you know, he was so big here. They would the king of Western Swing. It was these two uh, things between him and Spade Cooley. Mm. Like who was the biggest? You know, and obviously mm-hmm. Bob Wills is. Right. But back then, before Bob Wills went into the, um, you know, I think he joined the Army in World War II, he had a show on the Venice Beach Pier. There were so many people there, they had to shut it down because they thought the pier was going to collapse under the mm. weight. Wow. I mean, like Western Swing was the shit out here. And it makes sense out here because this is kind of like a happy, you know, the weather yeah. and all that stuff. That, yeah. that music kind of makes sense. and. What and there was such a gigantic population of like hillbillies out here, huh. you know the Rose Maddox brothers and Rose. It's like those are the first people to slap upright bass. Yeah, they were all situated. You know, like L.A. had a giant country scene in the fifties when Pearson had had a point of view, and like every giant country star would come out here. Too huh. Hank Williams would tour out here because there were so many people that came from the Midwest. Yeah. That were out here, there was a giant thing for them. Hmm. And that was kind of in everybody's DNA. You look at somebody like Chris Willman or Clarence yeah. White, right? Yeah. Two big guys in the birds. Well, what were they before that? Well, they were in these bluegrass bands. Good point. Clarence White was yeah, Clarence White was in the White Brothers. Yeah. And I I think I forget that the Hill Chris Hillman was in a band called the Hillmans. Yeah. And they played at a place called uh, Rancho Rodeo or something like that was in the Valley. And like, these were like the young kids playing country music in the late fifties, early sixties until the Beatles came Yeah, and then it changed. But you know, Capitol records supported a whole Western quote unquote type of music that came out of here because this is where the sons of the pioneers are from. True. This is where Tumble and Tumbleweed is Western music written for the Westerns, yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's like that was part of what they all came from. So, like, if you look at the rock scene from the 60s, it eventually started to develop a country edge, and that was the Eagles and Linda Ronstadt, and the Eagles kind of burnt it out in some yeah, ways. I, would I could say. see like, that. Yeah. I was in Lone Justice. Like, I was part of me. Now it's you know I have a different opinion than the Eagles, but then I was so fucking sick and tired of here <laughs> with the fucking hot tubs and the fucking you know girls in the quaaludes right. and you know hotel fuck you all you know you fucking fat rock stars you know and <sighs> me doing Lone Justice was was against that like yeah. that was part of what I was rebelling against was that fat rock star thing. Right, And then to see the whole fucking punk scene, like one of the major sponsors of it became this Roots thing, yeah. which then in turn became this foundation for country. And, you know, I had Tony fucking Brown come up to me from Nashville, one of the biggest producers. I think he was running MCA at the time, telling me how much that first Long Justice record changed the way he made records. And, you know, he took a giant, he took a Don't Toss Us Away and gave it yeah. to Patty Loveless. One by one they break It's such a shame And now you say you won't do the same well, Don't 
You know, it was yeah. like, so that no one's really ever talked about that. And they talk about the root scene, but it's like, what did it come from? Why did it yeah. come up? And it's because it's the indigenous. That's why Lone Justice, I know now, that's why people dug Lone Justice was because we tapped into something that everybody kind of still heard. Huh. It was an indigenous tone that was out there and we tapped into it. It was part rockabilly part western and a little campy you yeah. know maria kind of had the you know if you look at the you know listen to the maddox brothers and rose it was like maria's brother back then brian was turning me on to them because i'd never heard of them yeah you know yeah but like we were really we were really into you know uh buck owens i nice. was really into sure. merle haggard i was yeah. really into that guy Kim. i forget his name right you know that guy at capitol and like, you know, all of those guys, like Buck Owens, he lived in L.A. Then he moved, you know, they stopped in L.A. Mm -hmm. and then they moved out to Bakersfield. A lot of them spent time in L.A. Right. And a lot of them went through this guy, Wynn Stewart's band. And he is kind of like the one of the first L.A. country honky tonks. Huh. Because when I grew up in L.A., there were tons of country bars here. Tons of them. The old men hung out in. Wild. Carson had a ton of them. Okies, like people yeah. were still called Okies in the seventies. <laughs> right, you know, right? We're like a little whole thing. Wow. So that's why it always goes that way. It's part okay. of, you know. Yeah. So let me ask you like, this. You know, I, you, yeah. Well, go on. Okay. So let me let me let me. I don't know if it's pushback, but here's my thinking. So the soundbite or the buzz of Lone Justice is this is sort of around unfulfilled p potential came on hot bound to be the next big thing an album that cautionary tale yeah cautionary you know, almost tale. like a tragic figure in a lot of ways one oh, album cautionary tale yeah. yeah one album that people love but didn't take off but the thing that i come back to when i listen to that and i think about your story is i'm wondering what kind of expectations people had because show me a precedent of a band like lone justice around that time selling millions of records they didn't exist yet that i could understand a couple yeah. years later when people like maybe mellencamp or u2 or bruce hornsby in a way or the, you know some of these other bands were starting to make that sort of rootsier rock more uh you know popular big country the alarm those kinds of bands i could see you going in with some of that but out of the box, who thought that Lone Justice was going to go multi-multi-platinum? I don't see a precedent for that. No, it was stupid. It was a, it was a bad, it was, that was a bad choice from the higher ups. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was, that was not the, that's not the way that we were making the band. That was, that's what happened when, you know, the press got so big around Maria yeah. that it got clouded and people started to make, you know, 
decisions that Warren is clear-headed. Huh. You know, I, yeah. I don't think, you know, in the beginning, you know, we got to Geffen through Marvin and a guy named Nick Wexler. And it wasn't until Jimmy got involved yeah. that things went into this hyper-reality. And, you know, I know in some ways that Geffen kind of felt like Jimmy took the project away from him. Yeah. You know, mm. that all of a sudden it became... And it, you know, and it did. He's a yeah. powerful cat, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's what I wondered. It, you know, I Jimmy's famous for his hubris, and I'm sure he's coming on thinking, I made Tom Petty famous. I made Bruce Springsteen famous. I made Stevie Nicks famous. I'm going to make these guys famous. They got a female lead singer. I like ladies. I can do this. I've got the golden touch. That, you know what I mean? That, that was exactly what he thought. And we looked at Jimmy as through the eyes of Patti Smith Easter, mm. Damn the Torpedoes by Tom Petty. You know, yeah. that's what I, I did not look at Jimmy as Belladonna. I <laughs> ignored yeah. that, you know. Right, right. I ignored the Belladonna stuff. I ignored, you know, I looked at Jimmy at the things that he did that I thought were really good. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, Jimmy, he did the right thing. Mm. He, well, I, I can't say he did the right thing. In the beginning, though, his instincts we're in a better place. Yeah. And when I say that, what I mean is he brought Benmont tension and just right. basically it was kind of like he brought Benmont tension, kicked him out of the car <laughs> and then like, call me in three months. And that was what Jimmy did. That was the best thing he did. Right. After that, it was all shit, you know, uh -huh, but uh -huh. that was the best thing he did because he brought Benmont in and Benmont is an amazing, just a person, you know, he's yes. a great person, but he's yeah. also, this band guy, he gets band. He's in like one of the best bands in the world. Yeah. So he really got it. And Ben Munn brought to us just, you know, he just became part of the band. He didn't mm -hmm. come in and produce and, you know, he just kind of yeah. just jumped in with us. Right. And at that point when Ben Munn joined the band before Jimmy really started trying to work on the first record, that was the best. That was the, the best of the band. We're looking for some time some songs and stuff that we recorded at that point. But before we did that first record at that point, that was when the band was the hottest. I mean, Ben was on I think, fire. I think you mentioned that to me. If I remember correctly, when we talked before, you had mentioned that your favorite document of Lone Justice is that Vought Tapes compilation, correct? closest to what the, what Lone Justice was. That's the really? closest to what lit the clubs on fire. Yeah, that's, okay. That's our set. 
that's our set. And if you listen to that and you uh-huh. listen to the other one that just came out, uh, Live at the Palomino. Yep, yep. We got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper sprout. We've been talking about Jackson ever since the fire went out. I'm going to Jackson. That's a fact. Yeah, I'm going to Jackson. Ain't never come back. Now that one, I'm going to tell you, that one, that's maybe our second show at the Palomino. We still have the original drummer. So this is like, I, I can get it down to like October mm. of 1983, maybe. And that was Lone Justice before Heffington. Now you can hear that Marvin had done all the work. We had gotten the thing into a really good place. Mm -hmm. But that was the beginning of when we lit Los Angeles on fire. And it's that, yeah. And the Vought tapes were made after we signed with Geffen, okay? Mm -hmm. And one of the things Geffen asked us to do was stop playing as much. Oh. And so we kind of slowed down because because they thought they weren't going to be able to keep up with the hype. Yeah. Huh. And you know, I have to be honest. The press was it was overwhelming. At that I believe point, it. You know, I believe. It. What do you think they were attaching themselves to? Was it just the novelty of having a woman sing these songs? Was that so interesting for them? Was was it because Maria was a, was good looking? No, the press. What do you think? Why do you think? Were they taking their cues from Jimmy? Was who was overhyping this so much? Why oh, did no, it get no, that? No, 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 Jimmy. Our press started way before Jimmy. Before oh, Geffen. Our press okay. started before anybody. Okay. It started with three writers. It oh. started with three writers. A guy named Chris Morris, who mm-hmm. wrote for at that point he wrote for I'm going to say, The Reader. Yeah. And another guy, Michael Gilmore, who wrote for mm. Herald Examiner at the time. Okay. He's those both those guys are big time. Yeah, Chris Willman was another big writer huh. who was thrilled about us. He was really part of it, and then of course once Hilburn got involved, yeah, you know, and Hilburn you know did a gigantic like must have been a ten page spread in the calendar. We got the front, oh. we got the middle. It was massive. Oh. They talked to my parents. It was like. <laughs> you know, I mean, my God, I thought for sure I could have put that down the house. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> it was like... <laughs> That's great. Well, so let me ask you this. you That Vought tapes 
compilation, which is out there, it's fantastic. It's a lot more raw. Um, not much. Even the first Lone Justice album is pretty raw. But one thing I noticed half, is that... Half yeah. of that first record, I, I, I'm okay with. Other okay. parts of it, I'm not. So that, like, to me, that first that first record, to me, from my view, uh -huh, uh -huh. half of it is, is still, it's still following what we were doing on the VOD tapes. Like, I never wanted okay. to go too far from the VOD tapes because okay. I thought that we had something that was super unique. So okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go no, on. no, no, no. This is, on, so this, this feeds into my question, which is, if you go back and listen to the VOD tapes, which is from 1983, there's only one song on there, Soap, Soup, and Salvation, that ends up on the debut album. So what happened in between... People hearing the band that's performing on the Vought tapes, that's taking L.A. by storm, that's causing this new thing, that's causing a lot of buzz, that makes Geffen want to get involved, to whatever the band is that comes out in 1985 with a stellar debut album, albeit just different songs, different personnel, different everything. What happens right, in that right, gap right. right in there? Well, the most dramatic thing was Jimmy Ivey. Okay. That's what happened. Did in that. he not because have faith at the, the end, songs on that on that we hear on the Vought tapes? He thinks he can. Uh, he thinks something else is more commercial, and that's where the Lone Justice. No, sound it, comes it's from? In, well. There's a couple of things going on. Okay. But the main thing is Jimmy was the wrong producer. Like I don't, uh, I don't mm -hmm. hate Jimmy. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna flat out. I'm gonna tell you, I do not hate Jimmy. I, I spent a lot of time with Jimmy. I don't like anything that he did with the band. But on a personal level. I'm fine with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. He was he was straight with me. He said shit to me I didn't like. I learned a lot from him as a business yeah. person. Yeah. As a musician and as somebody with he didn't here's the thing. We were the wrong band for him. We're a country band. He comes from New York. Mm -hmm. People in New York hate country music. Good point. But, I mean, not all not all people. Yeah. That's that's a broad statement. But it's not something that for the most part, people that come from New York no. respond to. It's not in their blood. And so to yeah, so to him, to me, I'm thinking, God damn, yeah, I'm gonna play like, you know, Roy Nichols and I got this great Merle Haggard song and you know, mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. gonna go see, you know, <laughs> you know, like I had my whole like I'm totally into it. To him, country was John Fogarty. Uh, How about okay. you guys do you guys do Fortunate Son. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, like, right. we're doing, like, we got Maria singing Working Man Blues. I think that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> right. And so, you know, it was like he didn't really get it. And to him, the twang, the two-beat stuff, mm. he didn't really get it. So that was something that happened in between the Vought tapes, because the Vought tapes was still going off of my original vision that I brought everybody on to. My original vision that came out of my looking for something more that, than Rockabilly offered me. Mm, good. And being so inspired by the Blasters. Mm -hmm. Looking at the Blasters, they gave, me, they gave me freedom to look outside of Rockabilly because the Blasters would do a couple of Rockabilly mm -hmm. songs. They had, they had cred mm -hmm. doing it, but they were not a Rockabilly band. And they also did these great, like, swing tunes and they brought yeah. these blues guys up and they were like saying they were American music. And to me, I was like doing the rockabilly. I did it for about a year with mm -hmm. the band and we, we had success, but it was like everybody had the right hair and they yeah. had the right car and they yeah. had to have the right year of the, you know, in mm -hmm. that stuff, I was just yep. like, yeah, it's part of the why I couldn't be a full on hardcore deadhead because like the deadheads I hung out with, 
anything that you listen to had to have some kind of dead stamp on it. And I'm like listening to Springsteen. Right. And they're like, oh, he's, you know, and I'm like, I love this guy. Uh I like the dead too. So it was the same thing for me with rockabilly. I found the whole genre for the most part limiting to me and I needed to move into something else. And I, and I was loving the clash. And at that point, my girlfriend had left me and I was Mm. driving back and forth from my house to college and George Jones had that song, which he stopped loving her today mm, without. And I fell in love with that song. Yes, and best. that's when I was kind of like, I was like, why can't I like mix the clash and George Jones? There you go. You know? Yes. Like that. So that's what happened. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it, I, I have to wonder if it was, if Lone Justice got crushed under the weight of expectations, if those hadn't been there, and maybe, I mean, you'd know better than me, all the internal turmoil, but from an outsider's perspective, if they had just, if you had just been allowed to exist and do your own thing and and become as popular as you were bound to become doing this sort of niche music, if things would have continued a lot longer, I wonder if it's the expectation oh, that crushed everything. Well, it was that, and then it was the other thing that Jimmy did. And the one, and here's the thing that Jimmy did, because of who he is, mm-hmm. divide and conquer. Uh, We've all heard uh, yeah. So, you know, when Jimmy came in, I had brought Marvin Etzioni in mm-hmm. first as a producer mm-hmm. for Maria and I, because I loved him as a songwriter. I had followed his band, The Model. Mm-hmm. I had seen them, I followed them for four years until they stopped playing and marvin worked at the hippest record shop he's probably about you know eight nine years older than me he worked Mm -hmm. at the hippest record shop and you know so i i went in i would buy buttons from marvin and we 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 would talk (laughs) about music and then all of a sudden he kind of disappeared and then he came back with this this folk stuff that he was doing at the cafe de grand which was like the hip club i took me and maria with this idea, I took it as far as it could. We started to play acoustic shows. Then I brought in my drummer from Bedrock, and we took it to another place. You know, there was this group rank and file that was out mm-hmm. at the same time. And so I knew that there was, like, if we could open for rank and file, that we would have similar audiences, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I knew that. But we were, like, kind of working on our thing. But when I brought Marvin in, he came in not only to help us as a producer, he came in to basically teach me and Maria how to be songwriters. Oh, interesting. I, okay. I saw, I mean, I was okay, but Marvin was great. Yes. And Maria was okay, but Marvin was great. And he had a really, he had a real grip on the technique. He had a real grip on the craft. Yeah. He was great. He, like he showed up the first day with notebooks for us. It was cute mm-hmm. as hell. I mean, I remember that, you know, and Marvin really was in there. So, what made Lone Justice great during 1983 was any song that I had mm. before I took it to the band and played it. I sat down in a living room with Marvin and Maria. The three uh, of us sat down and I played the song. That's great. And I played that song and then Maria would say what she would say and Marvin would say what he would say. And if we liked it, then we would all kind of work on it. We'd arrange it. It would still be my song, but we'd arrange it. We might do this. Mm-hmm. Maria might have an idea for a harmony. And we'd kind of rough it into a good place. And mm-hmm. then when we were, all three of us were happy, we would take it now to the studio. Mm-hmm. And now we do it with the drums. Mm-hmm. And now we take it into the live situation. Mm-hmm. But it had to pass that triumvirate. That's cool. Three of us. Yeah. So okay. what Jimmy did was blow that apart. Oh, 
That's what so was that working. was the first. Yeah, okay. Th- that was the, and that was the first thing that he did. He divided and conquered. He blew that thing apart. One day, you ask Maria, you ask Marv, and we all say we all know yeah. that story. We yeah. all know that day. We know how powerful that was and how much it changed the course of all of our lives. Uh. That one day, and that's what he did. He separated it, and then once he separated it, then basically. I was leading the band by bringing people into my vision. Mm-hmm. At that point, he firmly, by getting rid of any of my songs and my voice, mm-hmm. and because I didn't have management helping me, management was all on Maria's side. They weren't looking to help me. Right. It just became this Maria vehicle, which yeah. I didn't know. I was yeah. 21 or 22. Uh, no one told me, hey, man, yeah. if you don't have a song on the record, you're not in, you know. It's, <laughs> right. And so that's that's what happened. Okay. You know, it was. Okay. So by the time Jimmy got in there, he just basically just kind of focused on her. And well, it became her. And then he yeah. he needed to weaken me. So there was a series of things that went on with him so that he could he could basically make me into just a band member no That's longer a, but it was hard because i had i was signed together. yes so well eventually there was a reckoning you and i talked about this before that so when people think of lone justice they think of maria what they what gets lost in all of this is your story which was as the co-founder of this band and really in a lot of ways founder, the, 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 actually, okay, well, the, the founder. Uh, there you go so the founder <laughs> you know? and in a lot of ways the artistic driving force at least at first until it gets taken well, over it's st- well and if you look at it too like my career has never changed i've been doing the same thing from lone justice to rattlesnake daddy to parlor james it's like i'm always in that same world yeah maria's never been in that world she went through that world because i painted it and i created it and then with marvin the three of us really created this thing that we all embodied. And that was the focus and the point of view of lone justice. Mm-hmm. But when that divide and conquer happened, then it, it he could basically, then it became Maria's yeah. direction. Okay. And you can see what happened. That's the part of that first record that I'm not so crazy about. And then that shows you what shelter. Yeah. For me, Shelter is a record I would never have anything. I mean, and I I had barely anything to do with that record. I think uh-huh. I played acoustic guitar on one track. That was it. <laughs> that whole record. I, I still don't understand some of the lyrics. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like that thing made no sense. I just didn't know what to do. I had built right. this house. 
Right. And there was now there was no rooms for me in the yeah. house. And I was yeah. outside. And I just didn't know, you know, like I didn't want to go back to my parents' furniture <laughs> store. That was just smelled <laughs> horrible. You know? No kidding. I okay. eventually did, and it didn't feel, you know. Oh, that'd be rough. Fine, That's know? rough. So let me yeah. ask you about this oh, for a no, second, because yeah. if I look at the now, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense, because as as we've established, this started out as your band. But when I look over the track listing, you only have a co-write on one song. Wait till we get home. Yeah. Yeah, no, I told you, yeah, Jimmy killed, he That's killed a fruit, him. okay, so that's the that's the result of Joe of Jimmy coming in and kind of ah, breaking that down. Absolutely, and getting rid of anything that had a real, like, a country influence. I uh-huh. had this one song called The Train, and, like, we recorded it for the first record. I was born in the southern state, just out of Shreveport, USA, had a railroad track. Help me sleep at night Had a two-room shack with sheets and walls It was mama, papa, and me And the train whistling and roaring endlessly And I was old enough To ask a question or two I asked my mom to tell me about that train She said the train
And it came out eventually on one of the compilations. Mm -hmm. But that song was like, you know, we Hilburn had written about that song in particular in the Times. Like that song was one of our big showstoppers. And Jimmy wouldn't let it come on, you know, and that was my song completely. Like I at that point, like when everything exploded in the beginning, it was me and Maria singing lots of duets. Mm. In fact, we even found earlier stuff where it was mainly me singing. She was just singing a few things. Wow. But as Maria started to get comfortable and great on stage, I was like, yeah, go out there. Like, I'm yeah. trying to figure out how to be a better lead guitar player. I'm trying to figure out how to be a better singer. And she loved it, man. You put the light on her and she just mm. shined and glowed. Mm. And I was like, yeah, it's great. I love it. You know, it's fun, yeah. but I don't need it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't okay. need it. So like, I was thinking more like Jimmy Page with wow. Led Zeppelin because that's that's how I'm thinking. It's like, oh, here's the guy behind it, right? And that would have worked out great if it had been that kind of a man. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> right. So tell me about uh, tell me about ways to be wicked because obviously this is a this is a Tom Petty and Mike Campbell right? This song is great. It sounds just like them. I'm guessing, is this another example of Jimmy saying we need a hit or we need something from outside? We need something a little different. Yeah, I've got my that buddies. Wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Jimmy as much as it was uh, Geffen. One of the stipulations they made with us, which, you know, I'm not going to say it was flawed. I just don't think that it was as forward thinking, but they were, you know, probably trying to protect their investment. They said to us, listen, you guys aren't established enough as writers. We want to have some established person write the song for you. Mm. Mm. And so we're like, okay. And so then then, then they said, okay. So after a while, we had three songs to pick from. One by Petty. Uh One by Springsteen. What? Do we know this song? I'll send it to you. Oh, and, I didn't know um, if it was something he's written that showed up somewhere else. Oh, yeah, it did. Well, that's a whole other story. Okay, okay. Set. Anyway, continue. Okay. And another one that Dylan wrote for us. Yes. Okay. Okay. Okay, so that's that's what it was, all right? So, so, so we were going to have to do one of those songs. So the Springsteen song that he gave us, I forget what it was called. It might have been called like Judy's something. I don't know. Okay. It wasn't that great, but Ivan knew a song from Darkness uh-huh. that Springsteen never cu- cut that Ivan thought would be great for Ooh. us. So Ivan got it. So Ivan got it. Now, mm-hmm. there's a history between Ivan and Springsteen about songs because Ivan did this with Patti Smith. Ivan took Because of the Night without mm-hmm. asking Bruce, <laughs> gave it to Patti. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh huh. Patty loved it, but wasn't so crazy about the song. So Patty changed the lyrics, and then right. And this, I, I don't know if you can put this out because I don't know. How, oh, I think that's pretty well established. So is, okay, but yeah, and basically that created a rift. And she took, I think, publishing, and that created a rift between Springsteen and hmm. and Ivy. Okay? Oh, okay, so Ivy did it again, and he got this song called "The Way." Hmm. So it wasn't the one that Springsteen gave us; it was another one called "The Way." And like when Springsteen gave us the song, like me and Maria flew to St. Paul to meet Bruce. No way. He was on the first on the first show of uh, Born in the USA tour. I mean, I was there when they were filming Courtney Cox when she really she danced with him in that yes, video. Yes, of course. I was there that night. No he way. Played that song three times in a row. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
And then I went back and I had like a private meeting with the boss. It was like me, Maria and Jimmy and Bruce Springsteen. And I got to say one of the greatest cats. Uh, talk to me listen to everything i just everything that you would want him to be yes he was just good, a good. solid cat as well as petty you know petty came down and played us the song and showed it to us uh, you know great cat mm-hmm. and and then with with um dylan too you know dylan mm-hmm. came down the studio that was a whole other thing but we picked ways to be wicked okay at that point, there was just drama <laughs> everywhere. Okay. Okay. At, at that point, everything was wacky and weird, you know. Okay. But we, I love that. I thought it was a great song. I do too. Yeah, and one of my listeners asked me specifically to ask you about the Dylan song, and I am curious why that ended up as a B-side. Was there just no room? Just, I mean, how do you turn down a Bob Dylan song written specifically for you? Who has the balls to do that? Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess Jimmy has the so, balls to do this. So the Bob Dylan story and the whole song, it, you know, it, it, pretty soon it became an incident more than a song. And I think oh. that's what, what killed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and this is something that took me years to figure out exactly what happened. Cause I, I didn't know, but we were in New York and you know, remember I was, I was young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're in New York. We're recording at the power station, which is, you know, where fucking Lennon did double fantasy. And, yeah. you, know, I mean, like, you know, it's got a fucking elevator that opens up into this gorgeous fucking room. It's super <laughs> impressive. you know. And, you know, they brought us in there for two weeks to record uh-huh and so it was a you know big fucking deal well one day like dylan's written a song and he's gonna come and he's gonna play it for you guys and he's gonna teach it to you so we're like oh great dylan well this will be a trip so we're there and playing and all of a sudden the elevator opens up and there's bob dylan with two chicks on both arms oh no way <laughs> walking in yeah i mean it was like it was intense 
And, you know, it's the first time most of us had met Dylan. Now, Benmont had worked with Dylan before, and Benmont was there cutting with us. Mm. And so uh, Bob puts on the guitar, and he goes and he stands facing the wall. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. Nobody can see his hands and see the chords. And he just plays, and, like, Benmont is, like, leaning over uh-huh. his guitar neck, looking at the chords, and then he's going, like, okay, B7-5, all right, all right, yeah, that's an A. He's doing D, you know, so we figure out the chord that way and we start to play it. Now, remember, I started bands. The reason why I started bands early in the beginning was because I tried, I auditioned for a couple of bands Mm -hmm. and it was the worst fucking thing I'd ever done. And I thought, fuck that. I'm never going to do that. I'm going to be, I'm going to be in my own band. I don't have to worry about it. And part of my thing as a guitar player at that point is like, I would learn something and then I'd have to live with it for a little bit. And then once I lived with it, I'd get under my hands, I'd work, I'd figure it out. And then I was fine. Mm -hmm. But me being like a straight up like session player at 22 at that point in New York. No, you know. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I was just kind of working out my parts, figuring it. And then all of a sudden the session stops. Hmm. And to get on the, hey, Ryan, come on into the control room. So I go into the control room and somebody comes up to me. It's like, yeah, Bob doesn't want you to play on this song. Oh. Oh no. Oh. And I'm just like, what? What? Oh, no. Ouch. He, he's going to bring someone else in. And I'm just like, ugh. So I sat there and I watched the band record. And then Bob's friend shows up and it's fucking Ron Wood. What? From the Stones? Yeah. Oh. Ron Wood comes in with his you know, hot wife. And now uh-huh. they're drinking whiskey and you see Woody and Bob out in the studio, like playing guitar. And uh-huh. you know, I learned things. I watch them and I fuck sure. around. Sure. That took a little of a sting out to be replaced uh, by Ron Wood. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah, it's what it was, uh-huh. but you know, I just thought it all happened, but you know, I look back and it's like, Oh, that was fucking set up. Like <laughs> what Ron Woods available to come down <laughs> right. with his girlfriend in an hour. Like I was so devastated, I didn't even put it together. You know, oh, me. That's so, so that funny. Was, so, so that incident in turn colored that song. And honestly, I think that the, I think that the, the petty song was better. Okay. I know it's just a better, okay. better song. You okay. know? And that's really what won out at, at the end. It was like, yeah, he wrote it for us, but yeah. you know, it is. It's a great song. It's been released. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great it, song. It, it's been. I liked. You know, I li- I liked it, but I loved. But I thought that Ways to Be Wicked was, yeah, okay. you know, out of a single, it was a stronger one. And that I, was really what got it. I hear you. I think I would think any young rock star, you know, coming up could relate to a story like that. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Bob Dylan and Ronnie <laughs> well, Wood push you out. That makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, like I said, like the, Ron Wood took the, took the sting out of it. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. then I got to watch them in the studio. I got to watch them do tricks that like... I, you know, I'd never yeah. thought of like right. stuff that I've always, oh, yeah, yeah. that's hip. Yeah. So, you know, okay. so that's, so that's the story of the Dylan song. Okay. That makes sense. Um, now tell me one more thing. I, um, the sweet, sweet baby song is also a single and it's great. And it's co-written by Maria, but also Benmont and Stevie Van Zant, little Stevie, I should yeah. say.
how does uh, how does little Steven? I'm I'm assuming this is another Jimmy thing. How does little Steven oh, enter Jimmy. your world? And then he sticks he around no and produces the second album. Yeah, he obviously had no place there in that world. <laughs> yeah, right. He was totally the wrong choice. It was just Jimmy didn't know what to do. Okay. You okay. know, he he had no idea what to do. He brought in little Steven. Little Steven was totally the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he'd been better to bring in Tom Patty. You know what I yeah, mean? Somebody yeah. that had been understood. Like, that's why Benmont was so good. When you look at Teddy in the early days, you know, Petty's got all this birds influence, mm-hmm. the animal influence. Yeah. You know, all of that stuff was not that different than what we were doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Petty was, you know, that, and so, you know, Stephen Van Zant was just, I think, somebody that Jimmy knew well. Yeah. And it's obvious to me by the second record, because then Stephen was responsible for getting Shane Fontaine into the band and all and was, uh, you know, all that stuff. Okay. You know, it was just, okay. that's when it kind of went sideways yeah so that was just that was all jimmy like that's like that's the part of the lone justice record where it started to to me i look at that more as shelter that was a sign of things to come okay that song yeah i didn't respond to that song that didn't have anything to do it felt like like when we started lone justice there was nobody like when i when we first were going out hanging out like there was nobody going to record stores buying Merle Haggard's records. Yeah, nobody yeah. buying George Jones records. It was my own world. It was the thing I, I heard in my head. I heard this music and I couldn't find it at, at Licorice Pizza. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. Like I heard a certain type of music and yeah. I couldn't find it. And, and I wasn't paying attention to anything. When Jimmy came in, he started to listen to other things that were on the radio at the time. Mm. We got where we got because we were just, paying attention to ourselves and what we dug once jimmy got there he opened up that focus and that was one of i thought the attempts at uh, at that you know what i mean yeah and it's not to disparage it's not to disparage anything about it it just had nothing to do with what my vision of what the band is at that point i no longer had control it took me you know it took me probably another you know a few more months to realize i have no control at that point i thought i did but at that point, when those songs were coming in, those were not songs I thought were appropriate. Got like the, the Vought the record was closer to what I thought our Got first it. album should have okay. been. That should have been our first album. That, that record, the lone, first Lone Justice record, and Jim even said it at the time, it felt more like a third album. Mm-hmm. And it does. It mm-hmm. looks like a third album. Mm-hmm. There's a few different genres that you have. Yeah. Like I always think the first album should just be like a, a point of view. Yeah. Good point. And then you build upon that point of view. Good point. Yeah, that's true. Especially back then. Another listener, Matthew Quinlan, he wanted me to ask you specifically, and now that I think about this, I don't know if you would have even been involved. He uh, saw Lone Justice open for U2 in 1987 at Wembley Stadium. Would you have been there? I was. No, I was gone. That's what I thought. Okay. I never, I played, I'll tell you the story. You like this. Okay. I played a few, I played a few shows with the shelter band because I was there to kind of, I there and I kind of transitioned it. And right before that band, right before the record came out and right before the band went on the road is when I left the band. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't there on any of those tours. So I played a couple of shows with Shane Fontaine and that whole second band, Okay, which was really just kind of, you know, Bruce Brody was great. You know, he came from Patty Smith's band. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was kind of just session guys that Jimmy thought, you know, 
worked and, and Greg Sutton, who was a holdover from Lone Justice. Sutton was a great writer and he was a holdover, you know, mm-hmm. but at that point the band was just in shambles, you yeah, know, like yeah. Marvin had left, Don had left. I was completely marginalized. Right. It was, you know, yeah, there was really n- nothing. And, uh, yeah, so all of that stuff, I was gone. I was gone okay. Okay. by that time. So tell me then about what you do when you leave. When your baby comes to an, or you, as you said, that was so perfect. Talk about building a house and then not having a place in this house any longer. Where do you go? I mean, I know you go do some other musical things, but they're on a smaller scale. You've got to feel like you just went into a tornado and got thrown back out. And what the heck just happened to me? I'm guessing anyway. I heard, what... I, yeah, no, I heard Steely Dan say it once. It was kind of like, I no longer had a place amongst other sellers. You uh, know what I mean? It was yeah. like, I was a shopkeeper. I no longer had a shop. It right, right. It was yeah. just, it was over. And because of the place that I was in at that point, because at that point there had been a lot of psychological stuff going on with me. Mm. So by the time I quit Lone Justice, I remember... I had just been married for two weeks. <laughs> and I, I yeah, right. Uh-huh. Hey, honey, I quit my job. Right. <laughs> and I remember after it happened, calling up my, uh, my wife at the time and saying, Oh, thank God it's over. Uh-huh. And she's like, what? I said, I just quit the band. She goes, is that good? And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, at that point I had been tortured for so long. Yeah. I had had a couple of, I had a couple of encounters with Ivy. And as I left, I was definitely, you know, pushed to my boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Psychologically, mentally, you know, at that point. And it was just rebuilding at that point. They had to negotiate me out of the contract, which I did. And, and I got a little bit of money just so I could just, kind of keep my life mm-hmm. for a year while I figured out what I was going to do. And then, you know, and then my life, then I, you know, was back mm-hmm. doing what I did, figuring out how to pay rent every month and trying to figure out, you know, at that point, like, you know, I started the, I, I've said to people, I feel like I paid my dues backwards ah. because at that point, you know, I was 22. I still had a lot of things I was trying to yeah. do. Like I wanted to be a better guitar player. I wanted to be a better singer. I wanted to become a better songwriter. Like, and that was the stuff. And all of a sudden now it was done, but those desires didn't go away. Mm -hmm. What went away was the ability to do it on a record company's budget, but it doesn't mean that I can't do it. So at that point, I just kind of, first I started to work with a guy named Barry Alfonso, a beautiful writer, lyric writer. Mm. And me and him put together a couple of projects, a couple of bands, one called the great crowd, common ground we had a couple of different names for the songs that we were writing and i started to kind of put it out there but in los angeles i couldn't get out from underneath the shadow of lone justice yeah yeah. so like people would listen to my music and then they'd be like yeah i really like it so what's Mm -hmm. my up to oh sure and so like you know that was my life it was like or if they saw me, oh, it's so sad what happened to the band. You know, and it was just mm-hmm. like, oh, pity festival. And so I eventually, I'm, eventually I made a record, um, a record I'm really proud of called Echo Park. And that right. was the summation of all of the songs that I did 
with Barry Alfonso. This record was produced by J.D. Foster, had John D. Graham playing guitar on it, Lucinda Williams' rhythm section, so oh. it was Donald Lindley and John Shambodi, great piano player called Ned Albright. Jeez. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Yeah, great, great. And uh, Gia Shambodi, who went on to sing with Springsteen later on. So I made this great record with these guys. And, you know, Foster went on to produce a bunch of stuff for, you know, yeah. a shitload of different bands. Now, this Echo so Park I album, the, I'm not familiar with it. Is it under your name or is it under one of the band it's names? It's Ryan Hedgecock. It's okay. Ryan Hedgecock under Echo. It was only released in England. Okay. And then around that time, you know, like when I was getting that record out and that whole thing with, oh, what, you know, every time I would see anybody in LA, like the shadow of lone justice would always control it. Yeah. My ex-wife, she was from New York and her dad had a place in a downtown Manhattan. He hadn't been in it for about four or five years. Mm. It was empty. And she had just made a small independent film with a friend of hers, Lisa Rinsler, and it was showing at the Tribeca Film Festival. Oh, wow. Huh. And uh, we were all living in Echo Park at the time. I was living in a house with my wife and Lisa Rinsler and JD. I think we also had a place out in the desert and we went to the Tribeca film festival and we all stayed at that place. And while we were down there, we were like, you know, I looked at my ex and I said, let's just move to fucking New York. Yeah. And she's like, really? And I'm like, listen, we got a fucking place. Let's just move. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that's, so that's what I did. I moved to New York, oh. 1990. I, I moved to New York to lower Manhattan I had a friend. I had a job that I could do there. I uh, I had been working in the film business, so I was still doing that. And I kind of I did an editing suite for a friend of mine that really? I designed and built from scratch. Yeah, I did that, and and then I started to reinvent myself in New York as a musician, and I didn't have the history, yeah. so I just kind of went there to become a gunslinger, and that's what I did. I figured I had Echo Park. It was out in England. Now I'm in New York. I can get to England. Th right. That never really materialized. Mm -hmm. But but working in New York did. So I started to play. First, I played with a guy named Chris Seafried, And we had a band that we put together called God's Child. And then he went on with God's Child to get signed to Quincy's label, Quest, oh, I think. Quest, point, At yeah. that point. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I started doing my own thing at that point, And... Uh, you didn't, Chris, why didn't you I go with him? Why didn't you become his guitarist or whatever? Oh, we we just kind of started to. I was I uh. wrote a song with them and I was I was playing with them and then I figured what happened we just kind of drifted apart. Okay. And uh, he went he wanted on to do that. By the time he was doing that, I had started a friendship with a cat named Sean Pelton, excellent drummer. He's been the drummer mm. on Saturday Night Live for the last twenty five years. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah. So me and Sean hit it off. I met Sean through Chris and Sean was like, Hey man, you've got to hook up with this chick, Joan. She needs some help. And her guitar player left. And so I went to audition with this girl, Joan who had this blues band. It's Joan Osborne. That's what I wondered. And so okay. I was, so I was with Joan for a couple of years and I really helped pump up her live show. I kind of beat her up cause she had like this scallywag that played with her when I first yeah. went there. She would, you know, she she was paying people, but she'd have a different, you know, this guy said it and that guy said yeah. it. And I'm like, fuck that, man. Was this all so before I got her Relish? Right before. Listen, okay. I got her together and we played for Chernoff, and that's when Chernoff decided to sign her. Really? But I knew Chernoff, yeah. I knew Chernoff. Okay. 
And I knew Joan, and I knew that I was going to get into Lone Justice Part 2 with Joan. And so I was just kind of like, yeah. Really? Me and Joan, we, we, I started to work with Joan, and something happened in the studio, and it was too much like the Lone Justice situation. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, you know what, go on. And she went on, and she made a great record. Mm-hmm. She made a great record. That fucking first record, Relish, is yep, killer. It is. Chernoff did an amazing job. All the players on it. I think it's a classic record. I'm yeah. really proud of her. I thought she did a great job with that. Interesting. I wish she would have made two more like that. I know. know. We all do. I've had Eric Bazilian from the Hooters on here a couple of times and talked about that album. I was Now, were any of those songs part of the playlist when you were around, or was it a completely new oh, reinvention? No, well, no, no. Crazy Fingers, I think. Let me look at okay. let me look at her record. What, like Right Hand Man the, and Saint Teresa. And... No, Saint Teresa wasn't around. Only one or two songs okay. were around. Okay. Now she released a live record around that same time that was mm. earlier stuff from before she worked with Chertoff. Okay. And that was, you know, basically when I met her, it was just a blues band, and it was okay. It was a little embarrassing. Like I didn't tell anybody. I knew I was playing in the band in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't. You know, it was like serious, like you know, like bar band uh-huh, stuff. Uh-huh. You know? But then once I got into good shape, like Sean, there was another guy named Lance, this black drummer that had been with Sonny Chirac. He was killer that played with her, and we started to do Marvin Gaye songs. We started nice. to stretch it out, and Joan and I had a good thing on stage. Like okay. she was, a, she was a good show person. I could really, I pushed her. We had a good thing on stage. Yeah, you know? yeah. But um, let me let me see what huh. record, what that first record had. Well, it's okay. I just well. wondered if any of those. No, the the, the hits were all hers and Chernoff. Okay. I mean, okay. Chernoff was you know, Chernoff is good. Yeah. You know, I mean, Brazilian. Yeah. Like I I know I know the Hooters. My ex wife she produced their first video, the one that really you know put oh, them on the map. Really? That thing in the yeah that thing in the um, drive-in theater. Yeah, and we danced. Know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that was she produced. In fact, that's when I met her at the first MTV Awards. She and I were both up for the best new video. No, at the very first way. MTV Awards. Yeah, I think it was at the Wiltern or some little funky no doll. Way. You know, that's great. Yeah, and we and we both lost. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> oh, that's classic. But I yeah, so I like and that. and then I became really good friends with John Lilly who was the guitar player in the hood. Okay. Uh-huh. So I know Eric. I know Eric and the other, Rob. Eric Rob. and Rob were the two yep. writers. Yep. And John's been with them since way back then. And John and I, we had a commercial company. When I lived in New York, I did jingles for a little while. Mm-hmm. And I did it with John. And, and I love John. I vacationed with him. He's a mm. great kid. Wild. Um, let me see. I'm going to tell you the songs from that, that first, not too many on that first record. I mean, Crazy Baby, that one. Okay. Help Me. Help Me was another one. I think that's it. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Wow, fascinating. That's it, those two. Okay. Yeah. So what are you doing yeah. today? I mean, well, and so let me ask you this. Was it, I hope this isn't too pointed a question, but since the demise, basically, of, of Lone Justice, have you ever, have you been in a position where you could make a living pre- solely as a musician or were you always sort of juggling different things? <laughs> Every once in a while. Okay. Every once in a while. Okay. I'm I'm like at this point I'm a jack of all trades. Okay. At this point. I can do pretty much you know I've worked in the film business. I was in the union. I've been an art director. I've done movies. I've done soundtrack work. 
Okay. Um, I design furniture. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all kind of. I do artsy, crafty things. You know? Okay. Okay. And uh, like, what so do you do today? What's your job? What does Ryan do today? I sell furniture. Okay. I sell wooden furniture. I design it. I put it into people's houses. Nice. You know, I do that whole situation. Nice. I drive large motorhomes for photo shoots for high-end cars and really? things like that. Yeah, I drive. I go on like long jobs or or day jobs, you know, uh -huh. whatever it is. I and it's like probably it's like it's a forty-five foot motorhome that I okay. drive. It's okay. like it's like a pro production vehicle on. Got wheels. it. Uh -huh. So I'm still doing production. Okay. And uh, yeah, those are the two things. That's how I'm making okay. my living for the most part right now. So you know? I could have a piece of Ryan Hedgecock furniture in my home. Absolutely. Ah, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Design. Yeah, and it's high quality stuff, dude. This is all wood okay. furniture. I don't make no crap. No, know? I believe it. I believe it. Okay, good to know. This yeah, is I, fascinating I got a website. I got a website. Go look at look up ufmdesigns.com and you'll find you'll see my website and go okay. to the custom stuff. You'll see okay. shit I've done. Awesome. I will. We're going to put that in the description of this show. So anyone listening, <laughs> can tap on it right now. There you go. That's fascinating. I mean, do you ever long well, for more music in your life? Or are you comfortable with the balance that it's at today? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm the most I'm the most in it at this point that I've been in years. Really? I am. Um, you know, bec well, because. First off, after the Joan Osborne thing, that that felt, that didn't fall apart, but that like disappeared because I was getting heavily into doing Parlor James. Okay. And what had happened is I, I I finally after about six or seven years, it must have been longer. I finally kind of got past my initial like I couldn't listen to country music after Lone Justice for a long time, mm, and it that. felt like it had been really trivialized and minimized in my life, and I lost my love for it. And it took a few years for me to see things clearly and kind of get back to it. And that eventually happened. And when that happened, I decided that I knew what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I talked to a friend of mine at uh, Atlantic Records, and I told him I had this concept. And I wanted to make this really dark Appalachian music, like Led Zeppelin. -y. Really? And I said, I'm going to do it with Maria. And I talked to her, and she said, yeah, I'm down. And so he gave me five grand. He said, make me three songs. Said, really? Okay. When yeah. was this? This is 1994. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. And so I talked to Maria and she's down with it. And I got the money and I'm getting ready to do it. And I'm figuring out what the songs are and everything. And then I have this realization. If I bring Maria into it again, it's all going to be about her. Yeah. And it's all going to be on her time frame. Yeah. And no matter what we do, I'm going to have to be beholden to Maria again. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I want to do again. Yeah. yeah. And I had fallen in love with J.D. Foster when he was playing, when he was living with me in Echo Park. And this is before we all moved to New York. Mm -hmm. He had been working on the Silos um, Crow record. You know that record with the crow's eye? I don't know if I know that one. It's a great, it's the best record. You should get it. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. It, it's I don't know what's but it's got a crow's face and it's got a big eye on the. This crow. is the silos, the silos. Did you say? The silos, yeah. Walter Salatomaz. Okay. Okay. And so he worked on that record with him. It was a beautiful record done by the guy who did that at uh, the um, Cowboy Junkies record. You know, with the single microphone. Ooh, yeah, Trinity Sessions. Yes. 
Yeah, beautiful. So this guy worked down there with these guys in silos. They did it in a big theater. It sounded great. And one of the songs was a duet with this girl, Amy Allison. And I fell in love with Amy's voice. So around the time that I was getting ready to go in and, and do these demos and trying to figure out what songs they were going to do, a guy named Nick Hill had me come down to Mercury Lounge in New York and do a, a songwriters in the round thing. And so I went down there and Amy Rigby was there, Amy Allison, me, and there was another girl. I forget who was at the time, but I got to hear Amy and I got to see her in person. And I, you know, she had the most unique voice I'd mm. ever heard. And I mm. loved, and when I heard her songs, I loved her songs. She had a couple of songs that were just fucking classic country songs. Wow. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is what I should do. Yeah. I should take the demo money and I should do it with Amy. This makes more sense because we can just do something together. And so that's yeah. what I did. Okay. So I got with Amy and actually the drummer from the Relisher record, um, oh. Sammy Marandino. He produced it with a cat named Ben Wish who had worked with Sean Colvin, I think it was. Mm -hmm. They produced some demos for us. You know, I told Maria what was going on, and I played her. You know, I told her, hey, I got to do with this girl. I think it makes more sense. And she was cool with it. And when it was all done, she um, said, well, you know, let me play it for my A&R guy. You know, so me and Amy came out, and we had a meeting with Maria and her A&R guy. And that was basically what got Parlor James signed. Oh. We were playing demos. We were playing demos for Maria's A&R guy, Geffen, uh, Tony Berg. And the windows were open. And I could see Tony Berg wasn't getting what wasn't getting it, you uh -huh, know. And I said, uh -huh. "Hey, well, let me let me play you one more song." And I jumped up <laughs> to play another song. When I started to play that song, it was loud. Somebody walked by the windows and stopped. And this was on the sidewalk. <laughs> this windows world, really, like the side street, right off of Sunset. Yeah. And the guy stopped, and I could see him because. He was, you know, Tony was facing me, but I was facing the windows. Uh -huh. Tony's back was to the windows. I saw the guy, and I saw the guy come in. And when the guy walked in, Maria and Tony Bird jumped up like fucking <laughs> Jesus had walked in, you know. <laughs> and I've been living in New York. I've been living in New York for the last, you know, ten years, six years. And the guy's like, "What is this? I need this." And they're like, "Oh, Chris! Oh, Chris! Oh, and then they, "Oh, Ryan! Here, this is Chris. This is Chris Doritas. He's got this." Uh, morning show called the morning comes eclectic and i'm like oh and yes. he's like, i need this and i'm like cool i'll give it to you <laughs> and he's like i love this and so i went and i made him a dat and i gave it to him and he started playing it by nice. the time i left la which was about four days later i heard myself on the radio a couple of times no way and that's what yeah and that's what got us started.
okay. on the on the first Parlor James record. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good one. And then okay. you know the song that turned me on to Amy was Cheater's World. You can listen to that. It's okay. a classic. It's one of the best country songs ever. Okay. Okay. You know, wow. Amy's gone on to write for a lot of people. She's Elvis Costello's favorite unsigned singer. He oh. plugs her. He actually Costello plugged her to Rodney Crowell and Amy Lou Harris, really? and they covered the song. No yes. way. <laughs> yes, Costello said to, to, to Rodney Crowell and Amy Lou Harris, "This is a song written for the ages," <laughs> and he and he gave her a song called "Her Hair Was Red," which he's right. It's yeah. one of the best songs ever written. Amy is one of the best no lyric writers, one of the most beautiful, well, beautiful person, but a beautiful yeah. musician. I mean, she is really her father's daughter. Wow. You know, she is really yeah. her father's daughter. Like he, he's got this unique thing on jazz. And when it comes to like girl groups and country music, there's nobody close to Amy Alice. And she is just wild. so good. Wild. Okay. Man, what a story. When you look back on all this. Yes. What is your favorite memory? I mean, you've had to have, during that, you know, the height of this brief period in your life, you had to have met some interesting people, hung out with some heroes, got drunk with some guys. What What's your favorite story when you look back at it all? God, I got too many, you oh, know? Really? I think, I think, th I think the thing for me, the stuff that, that I go back to, it's, it's the realness of some of the people I've met. Uh -huh. Like, Dolly Parton. Like, I'll tell you a quick story about yeah, that. Yeah, please. So, like, Dolly was there in the early part of Lone Justice. Dolly saw us at the beginning. She <laughs> saw us before Jimmy. She saw us right when we got signed because Carol Childs, who was our A&R person, brought her down to a show. And so Dolly was there. We got our pictures taken with Dolly. This is 1983. This is, you know, during five yeah. to nine. I mean, Wild. Dolly, and she was, she came off just like you would expect all to yeah. come off. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. And you don't, you know, and you don't know if it's real or not, you know, but yeah. it was great. We had our pictures taken with her. Now you cut to years later, the Vought tapes coming out. Now around this time in my life, I'm doing this thing called Rattlesnake Daddy. This is something that I came up with. It's a concept. You can go on YouTube and look up some of it.
I made a record. The record's going to come out. I'm going to be releasing it soon. I made the record with actually John Shalou, the producer that did bring the family for John Hyatt. Oh, fun. Okay. I made a, he, he won a Grammy for, um, what's that blind boys of Alabama spirit of the mm-hmm. century. Mm-hmm. I did this thing called rattlesnake daddy. I, my name was not attached to it. I was a persona that I put out there. It was me doing country music with samplers super unique in fact you should listen to the song jenny jenkins it's actually the last it's the only recorded lone justice single that happened after the fact oh wow it's got maria on it it's okay. got me on it it's got marvin on it and it's got don heffington so all of us are on it and it's done by it's done in the rattlesnake daddy style okay so i with um Rattlesnake Daddy, we were playing around a lot. One of the people that became really interested in us and really wanted to be part of it was Billy Ray Cyrus. Billy Ray loved Rattlesnake Daddy. And he started to come around, and Billy Ray had us come and play for the cast of Hannah Montana. No way. Multiple times. So, uh, yeah, I would go, and we would play. And, you know, Miley Cyrus up next to me playing tambourines, and Rattlesnake Daddy was a concept that I came up with based upon watching U2 play. Uh, U2 had done, had, would have this one set where they would bring somebody up from the audience mm. to play Knocking on Heaven's Door. Mm-hmm. And it was such an effective way of bringing the audience into their heart. I thought, let me make a whole thing that was based upon breaking down that fourth wall. Oh, interesting. So I did a musical. I wanted people to be involved. It was like a direct, assault on gaming culture it was like you know games you're so involved with music you have to watch and i was like no fuck it i can make a non-musician a musician this is how i'm gonna do it and so what i did is i conceptualized with a gigantic powered speaker ways to make for me to put together songs on the fly simple folk songs so i would make loops and all this stuff and then i can i came up with a way with the sampler that I could basically make all the music in this box and it was really fucking loud and had a wow. great beat. Okay. And then I, then I added a didgeridoo player oh. and I added a, and I added a percussionist with me and that percussionist had a bag of percussion. And so what we would do is once it would play the fucking didgeridoo, you're, you know, that has nothing yeah. to do with the groove. It's cool. It looks great. has nothing to do with it, but it looks like a band because I got three right. people up there. Right. The percussion player, he's not even Mike. But what his real job was, was to bring people across the line and give them percussion. And it didn't matter whether you could play or not because the beats were so loud coming out of my powered speaker. And once I got a good groove going, I didn't have to push the sampler anymore. I'd grab my guitar and play over it. Okay. And so that's all of a sudden I'd have like 10 people on stage playing percussion with me. And it became this real, like, super hip thing. And it, and it really worked because people would cry afterwards. They would be oh, so affected. And I wow. knew, you know, I knew that when I had somebody come up on stage, they were actually really getting the feel of what it was like to be in a successful band because yeah. I'd been there. Yeah. Like, I'd been at Madison Square Garden with the band playing behind me. I knew what it felt like, and it was the same feeling. Right. And they didn't have to put in the 10,000 hours to figure out how to play the tambourine right. right. They just needed to kind of get up there. Right. And if they kind of sucked, 
it just made the drum machine sound more soulful. Right. You know? Yeah. It just added that human element to it, you know? So yeah. that was the whole concept. So that's what I did. And Miley Cyrus, they dug it. Billy was helping me. He wanted me to open up for him. He wanted me to help me get a record deal, all that stuff. One day, Billy asked me to come down. And this is, it's all going to get back to Dolly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so Dolly, so one day, Billy invites me down to meet a friend of his who's got a, um, a show. And I didn't know this because I didn't watch Miley Cyrus. Right. You know, my daughter did. But her grandma or something was fucking Dolly Parton on the show. And it was a reoccurring cast. Oh, I don't think I knew that a either. A reoccurring part. I didn't know it. So one day, I show up and Dolly's there. And somebody that I knew on the set knew I was coming there. In fact, the didgeridoo player was on the set. So <laughs> the didgeridoo player came up to Dolly and said, hey, somebody from Lone Justice is here. And Dolly stands up and she has a fucking 10-minute conversation with me. I'm in the bleachers no. with all of the people that are there to watch it. And Dolly's talking to me. No way. And she she's like, you guys. Lone were Justice. Fuck yeah. And she had a 10-minute conversation with me, as sweet as could be. No Tell me how way. great it was, what a shame, and how sweet, she, you know. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Wow. So when we're going to do now, so, you know, I have that, and, you know, it goes on. So now, you know, you cut to about a year later, we're doing the VOD tapes, and we're thinking, wouldn't it be great to get somebody to write the liner notes, you know, somebody who was there. And, yeah. You know, we got Chris we got Chris Morris to write it. And then I was like, you know, maybe Dolly will write something, you know, she remembers. And they were like, really, you think so? And I'm like, nah, I don't know. We can ask her. <laughs> so they, they sent out something to her and her people got back to us. And they said, no, no, Dolly's mm. too busy right now. She appreciates it. Thank you very much. Thanks for sending that to her. And so we were like, okay, you know, it's worth a try, yeah, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. you know, we're just moving on with the art, just doing what we had to do. And then all of a sudden, right before the artwork is due, we get a phone call from a woman with an accent. Hi, y'all. Uh, you guys got a fax number? We're like, fax? What are you talking? Yeah. Well, listen, Dolly did listen to that record, and she loved it. And she wrote a whole lot, and we want to send it to you. And no fucking way. Dolly Parton wrote the sweetest, like those those people just didn't get it. That was the best, you know, just the sweetest thing. And it's on, it's on the Vate. There's a little like thing of it. So if I, if I talk about stories, it's like that, you know, it was wow. like hanging out, you know, hanging out with Tom Petty and yes. talking about the Disney channel, talking about the Disney channel. You know what I mean? Like that. Yes. And like Tom Petty, like years later, my ex, she did a, a show that Dave Stewart funded. It was like a, a pilot for an English show. Really? And this was like five, yeah, it was five years after Lone Justice was over. I was living in the Valley with her. And uh, when the show, when it was done, there was like a rap party at Dave Stewart's house. Uh -huh. uh, you know, I knew Dave Stewart from back in the day, you know, of course, I, I'm not going to go up and talk, you know, I'm not going to go up and talk to him, but Stewart's got his famous friends there, you know, uh -huh. and Petty was there. Now, Petty sees me. Petty engages with me and comes up to, Hey Ryan, how you doing, man? No like, way. is there, you know, like, he was like a, a dude. He was like, yeah. you know, he knew, and he knew Jimmy. He yes. knew what I went through. Right. <laughs> right. Like Petty, you know, Jimmy would not have been a problem if we had been on our third record. We would have told Jimmy to fuck off, right. you know, no, <laughs> right. get out of here. Right. But we were young and we didn't know. Yeah. And the management was young. Everybody was trying it's just to accommodate. It was just the wrong, 
course. Like I said, you know, it was Jimmy, and Jimmy's a force of nature. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you ask me my favorite stories, it's those stories where those oh people turned out to be exactly who you wanted. These are amazing. You know, that's amazing. Well, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for talking with me, man. I'm glad we waited because this was gold. This was just what I was hoping okay. for. Thank you so much. Good, good. Yeah, and we didn't, and we didn't have to go to anything else. You know what no, I mean? No. But uh, let me finish though. Let me finish oh, one yeah. thing. Yeah, so please. I did Rattlesnake Daddy. Yeah. Now I'm in the middle of doing records with Marvin. So Marvin and I are doing basically I'm doing a Marty Robbins slash Willie Nelson Stardust record right now. R- right super, now. Super, super. Really? Right now, yeah. Super broke down. Super broke down. It's like me with. Sometimes it's me singing with a bass. Sometimes wow. it's me singing with an acoustic guitar and Marvin playing bass. So we're working together. We've been working on this for the last couple of months. Nice. And then also, too, I've been involved in this hardcore blue scene in South Central L.A. And I've been helping promote some of the gospel stuff down there. And I've been working with these guys down there, too, on this blue scene where I go and I play live every wow. day and it's nice. great and it's in it's down in watts and like you know yeah you know people don't think it's bad it's <laughs> fucking amazing it's like i discovered in la there's a music scene in the black community that's like a mini new orleans really? and it's all gospel based it's like there's this cat down there that i found named kiso he's a fucking rock star this guy i'm gonna tell you i've been around talent before i've never seen anybody this talented he's like a cross between Jimi hendrix and like fucking sam cook no he's way. like he's that i'll send you a fucking i'll send you a him Do. singing an al green song you tell Please. me what you think okay yeah, i'm gonna Please. send it to you right now you're gonna get 30 seconds of it okay okay and okay. then i'm also so I'm doing that, and then I'm making an, uh, an instrumental record, and then me and Marvin have been talking about doing the Lone Justice record that never got made, just the two of us with a there friend of go. ours named Willie Aaron. Nice. And we're talking about doing that, too. You know, So like for me at this point in my life, this is the most musical I've been. I got a home studio. I'm making an instrumental record. Fantastic. I'm working down with the guys on the blues. I'm, Good. I'm doing field recording down in the... Uh, the church where they do this gospel brunch every week or every nice. uh, every month. So you know that's you're good. I'm music. Oh, I'm great, dude. Good. I'm as good as it's ever been. Good. Actually, I've been better. Good. <laughs> you know. Good. Good. That's what so. We yeah. Hear. So that's what's going on. So, okay. So Excellent. you know, there you got it all. You got it all. Well, thanks, man. All right, there you have it, Ryan Hedgecock. Hope you guys heard some stuff in here that you liked. Uh, if all you know is that one Lone Justice album, I mean, I know there's a second, but we don't really count that one, really. The one album from 85, go get your hands on that Vought Tapes album that he mentions. I think it came out in 2014, and you can really hear what he had in mind for his band versus the more, you know, glossy thing, commercial thing that came out later. That one Lone Justice album is really good, but... It's not what he had in mind, and you can hear the difference. Speaking of which, I want to throw some more attention to Rattlesnake Daddy. This is another song of his called Down, Down, Down. If you want to know more about him or Rattlesnake Daddy, just tap on his website. The link is in the description of this show. Now, next week, we are going to be hearing from, well, it's the third Tuesday of the month, and the third Tuesday of a month means that we're going to be hearing from the last, the fifth and final member of the immediate family, drummer Russ Kunkel. That guy's a legend. He comes back on sharing some stories with us. 
And that's going to be kicking off a three-week series where where we're going to be talking with big-time drummers. So Russ is up first, and then the two weeks after that are more big-time guys that have worked with tons of people you know, names you know, music you know. It's going to be fantastic. You're going to love it. Now, a huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for all the work he does. Guys, we've been putting out so much bonus material, and it's one thing for me to do the interviews. It's another thing entirely for Yan to be producing these episodes and getting them out for all of you. So let him hear it. Give him some love. Find him on Facebook. Send him a message. Send all of us a message, but focus on Yan. He deserves the love. And uh, anyway, you know how to send all of us a message on Facebook, on our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter, at The Hustle Pod, or you can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com. We love you. We're so grateful for you. We may or may not have more bonus information, bonus material coming out this weekend. I'm not entirely sure. We may take the week off. All right? Thanks, everybody.